Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. So I think it's amazing uh, when we stop and think about the fact that our Lord knows our frame. You know, a lot of times we see caricatures of God that God's an angry God or God is a vengeful God and, and that God is evil or, or harsh on people and it's not fair the way he would treat people when the reality is uh, he knows our frame and, and our Lord Jesus Christ came and, and, and took on a human flesh and lived a perfect life and he felt hunger and cold and he felt pain and so he knows our frame and it's one of those things as we go into Passion Week, as we think of this as Passion Week, this time from Palm Sunday to Easter from, uh, you know, that encompasses Jesus' triumphal entry, his entry into the temple, as we see him take on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as he uh, is teaching his disciples, as he is working through um, explaining just who he is and bringing his disciples around to this understanding and then being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then being put on trial and crucified and laid in a grave, and then later rose again on the third day on Sunday, what we celebrate on Easter. It's amazing just how much of, of the four Gospels are wrapped up in that last, or not the last, but that, that seven-day period. And uh, I know our, our community group was passing around some resources this week saying, okay, what's some good stuff for Passion Week that we can do as devotions with our families? And so if you don't have something, something that would be great is just grab one of the four Gospels because um, literally with Matthew, like the Gospel of Matthew, it, it starts at Matthew 21. And if you stop and think at like the Passion Week and then him coming back from the dead and then um, him teaching the disciples up to the ascension, that's seven chapters of Matthew. That's one-fourth of Matthew. Um, it is five chapters in Mark, from Mark 11 to 16. Actually, that would be six chapters. So it's, it's about, you know, over a third of the Gospel of Mark. With Luke, it's 19 to 24. And so it's, you know, roughly, roughly a fifth of the book of Luke. And with John, it's chapters 12 through 21. So nearly half of the book of John is all about this last week and then what God taught his disciples after his resurrection and up to his ascension. So those would be a great place to start. If you need a resource or would like to do a family devotion through the week, those are some great ways to start. So as we get into Psalm 103, we're going to stop and look and recognize that David is writing this psalm from an Old Testament perspective. He knows the law. He understands what it's like to be a king. He knows the promises that were made in the Abrahamic covenant, but he doesn't really know of Christ, at least Christ who came. He knows that there's a Messiah somewhere. He knows that his line is to be preserved over Israel and such. He knows the promises, and he knows the law, and these are a type and a shadow of things to come. And he didn't know that the thing to come was Jesus Christ exactly. He knew something that God would provide, someone that God would provide. But it's amazing how you watch this psalm and you watch it line up completely with the work of Christ, particularly the work of Christ in that Passion Week. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through this and we're going to stop and recognize what does this psalm say about us? What does it say about us? Well, clearly it says several things, and and, uh, we have these up here on the screen, and these are also, I believe, in your digital bulletin, but we see that Christ corrects the selfish and heals the sick. 
verses 1 through 3. Christ frees the imprisoned and the oppressed, in verses 4 and 5. Christ bears the judgment for sinners, verses 6 through 9. Christ atones for our sin, verses 10 through 12. Christ shows compassion for the sinner, verses 13 to 16. Christ models perfect obedience, verses 17 and 18. And Christ gives us an advocate, verses 19 through 22. So I broke the mold. I'm supposed to have three points. I hope you packed your lunch. Teasing. I'm teasing. But we're going to go ahead and turn to Psalm 103, if you would. And uh, we're going to stop and look. And we're going to kind of line this up in a grid. And so on the next slide, we've got this grid. And we're going to look at what does this psalm say about mankind? And what does it mean to David as he writes it? So last week, Phil Martin was here. And he talked about anti-psalm. This idea of what if you took the psalm and turned it inside out and wrote it wrote it the opposite. So rather than God is good and remembers me, you might say, you know, I'm all alone. Or, um, you know, I am blessed to uh, have forgiveness of my sins to say, I bear the guilt for all my sin. And we're not quite doing that same thing here in this mankind column, but we're going to stop and look at what does it say about us that we would need a savior. And then we're going to stop and look and say, okay, what did it mean to David in his time? And then later we're going to stop and line up, okay, how did Christ address this in his final week? So as we get started, we'll start Psalm 103, starting in verse 1, and it reads this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. So I think one thing that's really clear, what this says about us, it says that we are selfish and we are sick, yet... Israel forgets God's benefits, and God blesses them anyway. So we see that we are selfish and sick, and Israel forgets God's benefits, yet he blesses them. So when we stop and think through this, what does he mean when he says, bless the Lord, O my soul? I think when we think about soul, a lot of times, um, you know, especially for us in our, our modern day where it's like logic and all these different things need to rule over us, we don't often think about our soul, this all-encompassing me right? This, this, the spirit God gave me, the body he gave me, all these things, and my soul, it's like from the very depths, bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless his holy name. So it's more than just something we do with head knowledge, and it's more than something we do with kind of bleeding heart worry and, and, and confession and things. It's something that we're doing just, our, the fiber of our very being should be giving God the glory, and I think a lot of times we have to be reminded of this because we forget his benefits, So in Israel's time, right, we think of all the benefits God gave them. When there was going to be a famine in the land, and the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, right, put him in this pit and then sold him out of slavery, it's like even though they meant that for evil, God meant it for good. And the benefit was later they would be saved from famine by the food that was stored up in Egypt by Joseph, and that they would eventually go down to Egypt and have a place to live, and it started out fine, but they ended up in bondage, yet God freed them in the exodus, Right? And we see all through their time wandering in the desert, they have this attitude of, what have you done for me lately, God? Right? Here they were slaves, and he brings them out of slavery, and they complain. We're hungry. We're going to die in the desert. God gave them water from the rock. He gave them manna. We're sick and tired of manna. Okay, here's this quail. Right? 
They're hungry. They're, they're complaining the whole time, right? We don't like Moses. So Korah leads a rebellion. Like there's this, there's this thing where whatever God has done for them is just quickly forgotten. I think about one instance with, with myself. You know, when we first planted this church, um, I was working a second shift job. So I was, I was working, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon till 11.30 or 12. And so as elders, we were having a hard time finding times to meet. And I had applied for another position that was a day shift one, and I was praying for it. The guys were praying for me, and I know a number of people were praying for me and stuff. And I get the job. About a year later, I'm just like, oh, my goodness, this job is just wearing me out. And Jason kind of gives me this sly look and said, we prayed a long time for that job. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. <laughs> and it suited us. It ended up working for my family, and it worked for uh, being an elder here at the church for me to be able to meet with the other elders more easily. And it's one of those things where it seems like whatever we have, we feel like we earned it, and now it's owed to us. And now I want more. Right? I don't, ju- I don't just want a nice house. I want a bigger house. I want a movie theater room, and I want a swimming pool, and, you know, I'm going to pray for this. Right? It- it's like, you know, God has provided so much for us, yet we-, we always turn that around and we forget those benefits. We think about Israel, right? They-, they didn't just have a promised land. They wanted a king. They wanted a king so they could be like everyone else. They literally said, we want to be like the other nations. In 1 Samuel 8, they totally rejected God. And said, no, we would rather be like them. They forget his benefits. So David is reminding them, don't forget the benefits of the Lord. Forget not all his benefits. And that he forgives all your iniquity, right? He ha- what's he have to say to us? That we do things wrong. We have iniquity that must be forgiven. He heals diseases. So what does that say to us, right? That we are sick. And not just physically sick, but, but our soul is sick right? That we, we are just going to continue on sinning unless the Lord intervenes with us. We need His salvation. We need His healing. We think in Exodus 15, right? God holds back the judgment that's on Egypt, the diseases and the boils and all these crazy things that He did with Egypt, and He held it back from the Israelites. They didn't suffer under it. Exodus 23, God promised them, you know, serve me and I'll bless your food and water. I'll take your diseases away. In Numbers 21.8, Moses made a bronze serpent because they were being bitten by poisonous snakes and dying, and God told Moses, make this bronze serpent and raise it up, that if they get bit, they can look at it and be healed, right? God had given them miraculous healing. God heals all your diseases, all these things. David is reminding Israel that God is with them, and he's giving them this urging, this exhortation, don't forget his benefits. Understand you need forgiveness. Understand you need healing. He takes it a step further, verses 4 and 5, says this, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So what does this psalm say about us? It says that we are imprisoned and we are oppressed, but God had led Israel out of Egypt to a promised land. So we think of this idea of redemption in verse 4. He redeems us. Like Joseph was redeemed from the well, even in a sinful way, sold into slavery. He wasn't left there to die as his brothers had originally planned to kill him. He goes to Egypt, and he's serving as a slave in Potiphar's house, but it was a fairly decent gig, right? He ended up being in control of the house, but then he lost that because he was falsely accused and ends up in prison. He's like in a pit again, and he's brought out again. 
and he serves the Pharaoh in a pretty sweet position for a guy who's, who's basically an, uh, a former slave. He's, he keeps being redeemed. We think David himself had been freed when he was hiding from Saul, when he was hiding from Absalom, his own son who usurped his throne and tried to kill him. And he doesn't just redeem him. It's not like just the Emancipation Proclamation where he says, okay, you're saved now. That's not what he did with, with Israel. He didn't just save them and pull them out of slavery. He crowns them with steadfast love and mercy. It goes beyond just being emancipated. He's not just freeing them, he's crowning them. He's giving them a blessing, something special, something beyond what he's done for any other people group. He's chosen them as a people group with which to bless. And he satisfies them. The Lord provides, right? In Exodus 16, he gives manna, he gives a promised land, he gives protection against their enemies. He satisfies them with the good. So he pulls them out of this pit of slavery, he makes them a chosen people, and he provides for them and satisfies them. And so we don't even understand our position sometimes that we are imprisoned and we are oppressed, and God is leading us out of it. And not just leading us out of it, but blessing us beyond blessing. And he says, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And what does that mean? It's amazing how people groups all around the world tend to look at the eagle as, as something awe-inspiring. I, I saw an article this week, the eagles had returned to Carillon Park, and lots of people are down there wanting to watch them, right? And they watch to see them lay eggs and, and these eaglets being born and all this kind of stuff. There's like this some, some sort of renewed hope that we have in seeing the eagle, and it must have been the same way here in their time. Um, I'm not sure about the youth being renewed. I was, I was at some friend's house Friday night. Kids wanted us all to play tag. I still hurt from it. It's not physical youth, at least not for me. Everything hurts. <laughs> but our confidence in God, our confidence in God should be renewed. Let's think about that. We all probably know some folks who are, who are up there in years and seem somewhat jaded, right? There's sometimes you come across somebody who just seems sort of jaded, like they, life's been hard, it's weighed on them, there's maybe situations they have, and they don't sometimes express that confidence. And then sometimes you meet folks that do have this confidence, right? And they do see hope for the future, and they do see hope in a younger generation and things like that. And so when we are understanding that we're redeemed from the pit, we are crowned with mercy, we are satisfied with good, it's going to give us a different kind of confidence, right? Because we're not just looking around the world and saying, oh my goodness, these millennials are messing it up. Or we're not looking around and stopping and, and pointing fingers at the younger folks and stuff like that. Instead, we're going to have a confidence in the very God that saved us, that he will do his work in them. And I think when you see someone who has gone through life and gotten jaded, there's, there's not a lot of youthfulness there, but when you see someone who's gone through life and they recognize God's blessings and they recognize what they've been saved from, there's a whole different kind of confidence. And I, I can think of several people I know that, that uh, carry almost a youthful joyfulness, even in their old age. And what a blessing that is when you know what God has saved you from, that you can have that confidence. He will continue to do his work. So for Israel, David is sitting here saying, you know, we should be renewed in God's promises knowing he will save us. 
I think in this next section, we're going to see just another reason why we should be renewed like the eagle. And starting in verse 6, it said, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. He acts to the people of Israel, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So what this psalm says to me, what I believe he's saying here is, people are under judgment, but when the law was given, God held back, law was given, God held back his penalties. So righteousness and justice were codified in God's law, what he gave to Moses. And it gave power to those who were powerless to redress grievances, right? There's a lot of things in the law, if this, then that. And it was revealed to Moses and Sinai, and uh, even as he did so, the people were out making a golden calf, right? I mean, we, we just, we're, we're a sinful people that will keep going back to it without God's intervention. But within the law, God took and made them a very peculiar people, that they would have these understandings, that they would see God's morality, they would see God um, having these ways to redress grievances, these ways to deal with sin, these ways for people to not just worship him in the vertical, but, but to get along with one another in the horizontal relationships that they have. We stop and let's look at Exodus 24. If you'll look with me in Exodus 24, starting in verse 7, we'll see what Moses did with the law here. Exodus 24, starting in 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, quote, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So how did that work out for Israel? It's kind of like when you're telling your kids, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, go downstairs, you guys clean your room. And they say, okay, I'll do that. And you walk down the steps just thinking, no, they won't. And that's where it's like here, all these people are saying, yes, we will do what God has told us. Now we're fallible, right? We're feeble. We're sinful. And God knew we weren't going to do that. And that's why within that law there were sacrifices. But you see, verses 6 and 7, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known all his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, right? So they were told They were told, and they're without excuse. And verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he's saying, you have no excuse. You know what God's law is. But God is merciful and patient. But verse 9 gives a warning. It says, he will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. You know, to chide someone is to like scold or rebuke. And God reminds Israel He holds back his penalties, but he will not do so forever. So if you stop and kind of paraphrase this, you say, you're without excuse, but God is merciful for now. There is a a judgment coming. People are under judgment, but God is holding back those penalties right now. You see in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The psalm is saying that people need atonement. 
God forgave Israel and showed mercy by their faith. And he's put this system in place, a sacrificial system of priests who will take and have that work of putting the sins on another and sacrificing the idea of that scapegoat, right? That ram stuck in the thicket in place of Isaac that was sacrificed in his place. And the animals were sacrificed on the altars. He put this system in place, not because those sacrifices, not because the blood spilled, not because the animal necessarily meant something to God, but it was this demonstration of faith for them to obey God and make these sacrifices. The whole idea of these sacrifices was to bring them back to obedience, to bring them back to understanding, to bring them back to God's promises, and to show that in faith. Stop and look in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. I'm just going to read that real quick. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. forgot to bookmark my Bible here. It says this, The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's tension within that verse, right? He's saying, here's, here's your sin, yet God's forgiving it. Yet here's your guilt, and God's going to judge it. Right? There's this tension here where it's like, God is going to forgive, and he's going to judge it. And this is a tension that's going to be held throughout the Bible on how does God both uh, judge it and forgive it. And in the Old Testament, in David's time when he's writing this psalm, you know, they didn't quite recognize exactly how the temple and the temple sacrifices was this type and shadow of something to come. And we're going to see later when we start looking at Jesus and his work in the last week uh, there of his crucifixion and such, we're going to see how those types and shadows pointed to Christ. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So what does this psalm say about us? It says that we're a people that need compassion. And Israel was weak in obedience, but God showed compassion. Think of compassion that God showed them, right? Think of all the things that he put up with Israel, idolatry, their desire to conform to the world rather, rather than come back to him, the constant struggle with sinfulness, the rejection of God for other gods, the desire for power, their confidence in politics. One of the toughest things, you know, you stop and think of what this compassion for children looks like. David wrote this psalm, and he exhibited a certain compassion that I think is very interesting. His son Absalom had usurped his throne and ran him off, went to war against him. And after David's loyal folks had killed Absalom, David grieved for his son, the very guy who was out to kill him, who took his throne and usurped it, who took it in a coup, yet David grieved for him, grieved to the point that some of David's people came around and said, if you keep grieving for him, you're in trouble. 
because they're very frustrated. They just fought to get David back on the throne, and here's David totally immobilized by his grief for his son. But that's the kind of compassion that we should have for our children. That's the kind of compassion God has for us. Even though we're sinful and we're at war against our Lord in our hearts when we're sinful, God still grieves for us. He wants us back. He wants to bring us to salvation, and He does it through Christ. And He knows our frame, our weakness, our faults. He knows our feebleness. He created us out of the dust of the earth. He knows what He's done and that we are, we are imperfect. So our lives, as we think of it, are temporary we come and go without being remembered. I mean, when you stop and think, unless you've gone and done some of the big genealogy-type uh, charts and stuff, you probably don't know who your great-great-grandfather was or much about him. You might have a name, but chances are you don't know a lot about him. Right? We come and we go, and God's Word endures forever. Here in verse 17, it says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So this psalm is telling us that we need to grow in our obedience to the Lord. God keeps a faithful remnant in Israel who passed it down. So all through these times when Israel was wandering away from God, trying to do their own thing, trying to be themselves, and and all that gets wrapped up in that sinfulness there was always this faithful remnant who was passing the word down. I think in Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 14, there's this generational command that David knows it needs to be taught to later generations or it'll fail. But Israel wasn't teaching it down to the generations. There was just this small remnant that God was preserving. It wasn't the people group of Israel who wanted their sinfulness, who married off into, uh, with other tribes. It wasn't the sinful people of Israel who wanted to do their own thing or the Pharisees or Sadducees who wanted to make up their own law to add to the law. It was God keeping a faithful remnant, these prophets who spoke out. And all the way to 2 Kings 22, when Hilkiah rediscovers the law and takes it to Josiah, who realizes that Israel has been in error and he tears his clothes. Right? It was at that point where they had actually like, almost forgotten about the book of the law. It was collecting dust somewhere on a shelf, and they were just off doing their own thing. I think in my own heart how many times uh, through my 20s and stuff where I thought I knew the Bible, but I wasn't really ever picking it up and reading it. Right? It's like, if we're not steadily in the Word, we're going to forget it. We're going to forget God's promises, and we're not going to be passing it down to our children We have this generational thing where we need to teach them and pray that they faithfully teach theirs, that we be part of that remnant God keeps. Finally, here in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works, and in all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. So what does this psalm say about us? What does it say about Israel? It says that people need an advocate. And so God has given, in the Old Testament, priests and prophets and kings and angels that guided them. God set aside a a, a people group as a priesthood. There were judges that ruled rightly over the people. They were, they were called to this ruling in God's, in God's uh, word, in God's law. 
Yeah, they wanted a king, but even, even that, they gave him a king. He told Samuel, you know, he told Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So most of these kings did wrongly by the law and became corrupt. And God sent, that's, a, that's this maximum time where you see God sending prophets. We see them peak during these times when the government and the temple were at their worst, the most corrupt. God was still sending messengers, giving prophecy. And God sent angels. And, and this is something that, I don't know, for me, I just, I, I don't think much about angels. But stopping and looking through the Old Testament, there are so many times that God sent angels Job 38 says that angels were witnesses at creation. An angel came to Hagar when she was fleeing Abraham. An angel visited Abraham, Genesis 18. He res- uh, angel rescued Lot, Genesis 19. The angels were seen in Jacob's dream of the ladder of these angels descending and, and ascending in Genesis 28. An angel met Jacob in Genesis 22. Angel was mentioned by Jacob near his death as, as though he had had this guardian angel, Genesis 48. <laughs> Angel of death came at the Passover, Exodus 12. The angels were present when the law was given, according to Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68. Numbers 22, an angel warned Balaam. In Judges 2, an angel rebuked Israel. In Judges 5, an angel cursed Miraz. 2 Samuel 24, an angel judged Israel for David's sin. 1 Kings 19, an angel strengthened Elijah. 2 Kings 19, an angel killed Assyrians. And it says, and Daniel was in the lion's den. In Daniel 6, an angel shut the lion's mouth. Right? God has sent these helpers, sent these people, priests, prophets, kings, angels, all to do his work, to do the work that we couldn't do, to help us, to help him, to help further his will. And we should bless the Lord for that because it's interceding for us. They're coming and bringing his word and preserving us. Now, we have this grid filled in. If you're in the back, it might be an eye chart. I did this on a home computer, and so like, it, it looks much different up on a screen. So. <laughs> but we know that this Old Testament view that David had was complete for its time, but now that we're in the church age, in the New Covenant, we know that it's incomplete because he didn't know exactly of Christ. But God was preserving his pen and and foretelling the work that our Lord Jesus Christ would do. He had the law and the covenant promises, but he didn't have Christ. So there's something interesting that Jesus said. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 45, says this, Then he, meaning Jesus, said to them, the disciples, quote, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So these gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had the words of the disciples, the witnesses, and they wrote these out of, these, out of the stories of these witnesses. And we know that the Holy Spirit preserved their pen as they, as they recorded these things. And this preserved the works of Christ in written word to express to us down through the ages and to express to all mankind how he fulfilled all of the Old Testament scripture. So when we stop and look at that time when, when Jesus rode in on a donkey 
and the people cried Hosanna and laid down the palm branches to the time that he's crucified, to the time that he's risen from the grave, that we commemorate all these things that we remember this week, Jesus touched on every part of Psalm 103. I want to just walk back through how Jesus did this. So first of all, in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3, God corrects the selfish and heals the sick. So Jesus patiently deals with James and John's mother's request, Matthew 20. It's kind of a mouthful to say that. But, I mean, she makes this total tiger mom move, right, and says, hey, can, can John and James come sit at your right hand and your left hand in heaven? You know, and, and it's like this selfishness, right? They, are they remembering God's benefits? Or are they looking out for their next move, the next blessing they want, the more power, the more prestige? No, they're, they're, they're out for themselves here. They're not remembering God's benefits. They're, they're trying to gather more for themselves, We think about how Jesus rebukes the power-hungry Pharisees, right? Those who forget God's benefits. These people who take the law and then add all this other stuff to it to help build themselves up, to help build up their own power, to help put their thoughts and ideas on the people, way beyond what God put on the people. And even on on, uh, Palm Sunday when he's riding in and the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, the word Hosanna means save us. Right? It's this recognition that we need a Savior. Come save us. As they lay down the branches, it's like an inauguration. Come in and save us. Come in and take over. Because selfish and sickness was ruling in their lives. We see even that Jesus goes in the temple right after he rides in. He, goes, he heals a lame man. He heals a blind man. Matthew 20 and Matthew 21. Right? He's healing these physical ailments as a sign of what he can do spiritually. That he's not just there to make them walk or make them see, but he's there to bring them to new life, to heal the selfish and the sick. We see here that Jesus calls the humble and he rebukes the abusers. Jesus rides in on a donkey and he comes to the temple and he clears the temple of the money changers. He throws over the tables. He won't, it says in Mark 11, he wouldn't even allow them to carry things through the temple. He knows that the people have been getting cheated and ripped off. And he drives those people out of the temple. He pronounces the woes on the Pharisees and contended with them. Right? He knew that they were oppressing the people with false law, and he lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Jesus warned them to be wary of the scribes who puff themselves up and devour people. We stop and think of 103, right? He's redeeming them from the pit. And satisfying them with good by saying, look, get away from these folks. I'm redeeming you from these folks, these people who would put this slavery on you again. And he's calling the humble. You see in Luke 21, the widow's offering when she's putting in her last coins. When there's these others who are making a big show of what they're giving at the temple. And he points out her offering, how it meant so much more. It's not just this physical, right? He's calling the sick and blind and the tax collector specifically for a spiritual blessing. He's calling in the outcasts of that society, redeeming them from the pit, so to speak. We see third, God is merciful though we transgress his law. Jesus bears our judgment. So the Mosaic law shows every one of our hearts that we are sinful, that we are going to transgress his law wherever we go. 
Jesus tells us of a final judgment in Matthew 25. When we stop and look, and we look back in Psalm 103, we see that he says this, right? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Jesus is repeating this, that there's this final judgment coming, yet when he's lifted up, in John 12, he says, when he is lifting up, who will draw his people to him? So God will call out in mercy and grace all those who are oppressed, all those that he has laid on their hearts and called to him. He will call them out of that judgment. We see that God forgives the sinfulness of his people, that Jesus is our priest and our intercessor. He calls people to believe and escape judgment, and he intercedes on our behalf. And he's not just... He's not just the priest, but he is the atonement lamb. So he is the one who is going to be sacrificed, and he's also the priest doing the sacrifice, that God our Father would put all of our sin upon Jesus, that we could escape judgment, that his blood would be shed and not ours. He foretells us with the institution of the Lord's Supper when he's with his disciples, Matthew 26, and he's telling them of his body being broken and of his blood being spilled like wine, that he would be our priest and our intercessor. And in his crucifixion, our sin was put on him, and he was crushed for our iniquities. But his innocence was put on us. Refer to that as that imputed righteousness that we mention sometimes, that you know, God didn't just take our sin off of us, but he imputed it to us just like he crowns us. He doesn't just save us from our sin in verse four of Psalm 103, but he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies us with good and renews our strength. He puts his innocence on us. We see that Jesus has compassion on our weakness. He knows our frame. He goes and dines with Zacchaeus, right? He welcomed the children to him, right? These are people with no power, no wealth, nothing but a childlike faith, nothing they could give to Jesus that was anything of a benefit, but just just children coming with a childlike faith, and he welcomes those children to him. And he knows our frame. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. Matthew 26, he foretells Judas' betrayal. He foretells Peter's denial of him. He goes and prays to the point of sweating blood of shedding blood even as he prays while his disciples doze off. After he rose again, he, he had to show his hands to his disciples just to, just to prove he was back in flesh and blood. He knows our frame, our weakness. He sanctifies his people. As he's called us out to forgive our sin and has compassion on our weakness, he also sanctifies us, right? Jesus teaches us to carry out his works, So Mark 12, if you turn to Mark 12, Jesus echoes the greatest commandment. When he's being challenged by the the scribes and Pharisees, it says this, starting in verse 28, Mark 12, verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There's no other commandment greater than this. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself as much more than all whole burnt, off- all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus takes this summary of the law and expounds on it here and and shares it again that this is the greatest commandment. It's not the great commission, as some, some people have mistakenly said. It's the great commandment that when we abide in Christ and in love with and abide in love with one another, we will bear fruit. John 15 talks about that. He is the vine and we are the branches, right? We're going to bear fruit and abide in love with one another. And to show us what that looks like, to live out that greatest commandment and to abide in Christ and abide in love with one another, he washed the disciples' feet as an example of servanthood, right? He took off his cloak. He, he took and uh, went and, and uh, filled a basin and he washed their feet. The job of the lowliest of servants he did for his people as an example to us. And we know he sanctifies as well because uh, just as we had seen in, in uh, the, the passage of Luke, also on the road to Emmaus, when, when, he is a, when he is risen again and he meets these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize him. Yet he opened their ears to hear and understand how Christ fulfilled the scriptures, all the Old Testament. It's amazing that we need that done. Do we even recognize that, that we need the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes and ears to even understand all this? And that's our last point here, that God provides heavenly helpers. Just as as David is writing here at the end of Psalm 103, Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit. God still uses angels, right? He used an angel to roll the stone away and to speak to the women who came to the tomb when Jesus had risen again. And Jesus makes this promise of the Holy Spirit that he will send this advocate. And the Holy Spirit is going to convict us of our sins, write the gospel on our heart, write the law on our heart, and lead us to Christ. It's only through the Holy Spirit's work of guiding us and leading us to Christ that we can even understand all this. That's a work being done in all of our hearts. And it's amazing to think of this as we, we're going to read back through Psalm 103 in light of this. And I just want everyone to stop and think of just what this meant to David and what this means to us in the time of Christ, in the church age, in the new covenant. Let's read back through Psalm 103 again. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, who you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. As we go about this week and we remember Christ's sacrifice for us, I just encourage you to read Psalm 103 a few times and just consider that all we have is nothing but blessing of the Lord. We have pain and sickness and we have struggles and we have trials in our life, but in the end we have the blessings of the Lord that carry us through, that he didn't leave us in our slavery and our oppression. He didn't leave us in our sinfulness. Instead, he calls us out of it. And he doesn't just call us out of it and emancipate us, but he blesses us beyond. And that he has given us the Holy Spirit. He's called on these heav- this heavenly helper, referred to in, in some places as paraclete, which is like a, almost like a defense attorney, an advocate that goes before us, that carries us, that sustains us. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity that does work in our hearts. As we go about this week, I pray that everyone blesses the Lord for all his work and that it's all wrapped up in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. God, that you lead us into these psalms that that sing a joyous and gracious uh, uh, psalm to you. God, I pray that our hearts can sing these songs that can carry us through. Lord, that you sustain us with your word. And God, you lead us to read a psalm like this and to know and understand it's all your work. All these verbs are action verbs in your name, not in our own. That we bring nothing but sinfulness to the table and you bring grace to us. And Lord, that as we go about this week and we remember that sacrifice in Christ that atones for our sins, God, make us repentant. Lord, lead us to confession. God, lead us to your mercy and grace. And Lord, help us to serve you wherever we go. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.